kind of a unified shape uh, by supporting this uh, Council of Nicaea. But be that as it may, at the Council of Nicaea 325, uh, they dealt with the, the fact of Christ's true deity. Now, this is not to say that the church hadn't believed this from the beginning. It had. And as we've seen, in, as we'd see in the scripture, if you go back to lessons three and four, uh, great emphasis in the scripture on the true deity of Jesus Christ. And it's not that the church hadn't believed this from the beginning, but it's as these heresies started to come in, that the church found it very necessary to meet together and formulate the dogma uh, against the heresy. And incidentally, a little parenthesis here, if you want wisdom in understanding the growth of the creedal statements, you must understand this is the way creeds always have grown. It isn't that the church, if, the, if it's really functioning on scriptural base, produces something new in its dogma. It's simply as it's conf confronted with certain heretical statements against what had been believed before, then the church speaks out. And when it speaks out, it sets down the dogma. But a real growth of, of the, the belief of the church, the creeds of the church, I'm not talking about some strange sect or anything now. But the real development of the creeds of the church comes when a thing that has been believed simply from Scripture uh, suddenly is confronted with heresy. And as it is, the church speaks and a dogma is created. And uh, we understand this. We understand not only the history of the growth of dogma, but we also understand that dogmas are couched uh, to be uh, specific, to specifically answer the question that is involved. And that's true with this. So in the Council of Nicaea, they dealt with the deity of Jesus Christ. The second ecumenical council was in 381 at Constantinople. And they also dealt with the deity of Christ. The question was uh, not completely finished by any means at this time. And they dealt with the... Uh, the the deity of Christ. At the same time, they dealt with a person of the Holy Spirit. So 325, Nicaea, 381, Constantinople dealt with the Christ deity. We move on a little further to 431 at Ephesus, the third ecumenical council at Ephesus, and they dealt with the two natures of Jesus Christ, just exactly the way we have developed the thought tonight was the way, of course, men's thinking developed. And as these things were turned over in the minds of men and as heresies were battering against the church, they first of all established his deity and then they established the true deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, this concept of the two natures. And they delineated it very carefully as we shall see in a moment. We'll look at uh, some of this in a minute. They delineated the two natures very carefully. One person, two natures, and so on, just as we have looked at, looked at it through Scripture tonight. And then uh, in 451 at Chalcedon, uh, they also dealt with Christ's two natures. So you had two councils, the first two on his deity, the second two on the two natures of Jesus Christ. And in the fifth ecumenical council, at Constantinople again, I've not made a mistake, there were two at Constantinople, this went at 553, and they simply, as far as these questions were concerned, largely restated what had been given before. And so the last one was a Chalcedon, and that's the reason that you speak of the Chalcedon uh, creeds, because the Chalcedon creed, therefore, is the, is the high point of the 
previous uh, of the previous three and its own. Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon, Christ deity, and the two natures of Jesus Christ. Now the interesting thing is that from 451 at the, the time of the Chalcedon Council until almost our own day, not quite, 100 years ago or something like this, these creeds were never challenged. Through the church, you go through the Reformation, at the time of the Reformation, when Pharaoh was trying to preach here in Waymo and was driven out, this was a thing in which there was no difference whatsoever, and that was the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. The Reformers went back to the Scripture and the emphasis upon the fact of Jesus' finished work, where Rome had added humanistic works to his work. But that's his work wherein they differed. They did not differ on his person. The fact that he was true deity, the fact that he was one person with two natures, after the time of Chalcedon, was never challenged until the rise of humanistic liberalism in Germany uh, relatively few years ago. What we know as modernism, what we know as liberalism, is indeed of yesterday. It's a good thing to remember. It's of yesterday. Prior to that, the church had gone on in the biblical setting in this area uh, without, a, without, any, without hardly a wave. There were some, but very little. The Chalcedon creed stood. Creed stood. The person of Jesus Christ, true deity, but true natures, one person, truly God, truly man. And the challenge that has been thrown against this, and today, of course, modern liberal theology, you don't find any of this. It's all gone. It's all gone. You find a, uh, a Christ who is either uh, just a human figure or a symbol or a, a Christ of a Jesus of history that we make to be uh, the Christ in our preaching him to be the Christ. Something like this, the Kergamon. And, uh, but this is all new. When people bring this in now, and we're, those of you who take religious courses in most of the universities, you'll find this kind of a teaching. You'll find none of the nature of, uh, that has come down through the church. But always remember this, that this is of yesterday. It's hardly into the past at all. The church stood exactly where the scripture so clearly stands for all these hundreds of years in an unbroken stream concerning the person of Jesus Christ, truly God, true deity, eternal deity, the second person of the Trinity. But after the incarnation, two natures, truly man and truly God. Now, I think it would be worthwhile, again, we still have time, uh, to go on and think more of the way the Chalcedon Creed uh, formulated, the way the Chalcedon Creed formulated uh, these concepts, and the um, uh, the uh, that came down from the time of the of Chalcedon all the way up, as I say, almost to the present, on an unbroken way. So I'll give you some of the ways that it set forth. This comes from Shaft, incidentally on the Chalcedon creeds. Uh, first of all, the idea that's set forth, the first thing, the incarnation is not. This is a negative. According to the Chalcedonian Christology, 
which has been the historic Christology of the church. The incarnation is not, I'm saying not now, the incarnation is not a conversion of God into man. That's the first thing it's not. It's not the God becomes man. The second thing it's not, it's not the conversion of man into God. That's the second thing it's not. The third thing it's not, it's not a confusion of the two so that you don't have a demigod. You don't have a demigod. He isn't halfway between God and man. There's no confusion of the two natures. The fourth thing it's not is that it's not a mere indwelling of one in the other. That is, as I said, uh, the second person, the Trinity, indwells the body uh, of Jesus Christ so that the... Uh, the um, so that the second person of the Trinity takes the place of the normal human soul. It's not that. We saw that Jesus himself taught that he had a soul. The fifth thing, that it is not. It's not an outward transitory connection of the two factors that just were together for a short time and then gone. Because as we saw in Hebrews, there's the emphasis on the fact that the man Christ Jesus forever now. So these are the things it's not. Let me read them again quickly. It's not a conversion of God into man. It's not a conversion of man into God. It's not a confusion of the two natures. It's not a mere indwelling of one in the other. And it's not an outward transitory connection of the two factors. But it's an actual and abiding union of the two in one personal life. That's what it is. According to the Chalcedon Christology, which... I think even after our short study tonight, must be obvious is the scriptural emphasis. An actual and abiding union of the two natures in one personal life. Uh, to go on a bit further here, that the we find that Christ is not a double being, therefore. He's not a double being with two per he's in two persons. Now, in the Trinity, you see an entirely different situation. In the Trinity, the Bible insists that prior to the creation of the world, the two persons, the three persons, spoke to each other. The three persons loved each other. That isn't the situation in the in the person of Jesus Christ. He has two natures, uh, but there there aren't two persons here. There aren't two persons here. It's nor is it a compound. A compound. He isn't a, a middle being, as I've said, which is neither really divine or human. It isn't that. But it's one person with a true divine and a true human nature. And this tremendous emphasis also, without confusion, without conversion. Uh, I would just say philosophically, because I know some of you are interested in philosophy, this is a very important point, you see. Because in the scripture, according to the scriptural view, the infinite and the finite are never blended. The Bibles, if you're going to argue philosophically from the biblical viewpoint, uh, you must always see from the scriptural viewpoint the infinite and the finite never are blended. Never. And the great emphasis in scripture of the never blending of the infinite and the finite is that even in the one person, Jesus Christ, where there's two natures, they're not blended. They're not mixed. So that the scriptural, the scriptural emphasis takes the infinite and puts it here and puts the finite here and it keeps them totally separate. 
Now, as we were saying, some of us in discussion this afternoon, on the other side, of course, and of course I've already dealt with this in these lectures, but on the other side of personality, they are brought together. The God is pers a personal God. He thinks, he acts, he feels. Man is made in his nature. He thinks, he acts, he feels. And so on this side, there is contact. But on the side of infinity and finiteness, there is no contact. There is no mixture. The scripture has no elements of pantheism in it. It just isn't there. Scripture can be said to be the system which is totally opposed to the, any pantheistic concept. There's no mixture of finite and infinite. Even in the person of Jesus Christ, where he is one person, where with two natures, the Bible would also indicate very clearly uh, that there is uh, there is no mixtures. Now then, as to his work, as to his work, the whole work of Christ is to be attributed to his person. Uh, the whole work of Christ is to be attributed to his person, and this means the whole work of Christ, therefore, is attributed to the one person of Jesus Christ with both natures. And then that brings us in to why was it requisite in the longer catechism that he be God, that he be man. This is, we've come around the circle now. But I'm thinking of it in the background now of the development of the Chalcedonian Christology. So we find that on the side of the fact that he is God, his death is infinite. It fills up the infinite chasm. No matter how big the chasm is, no matter how much an individual sin is, no matter how great is the guilt of all the sin of God's people who become God's people through redemption, the work of Jesus Christ is infinite because he's God. And being infinite, that great suffering on the cross, that cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This thing of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, and the, this, the, uh, the separation caused by man's sin and rebellion being carried right up into the Trinity itself, as it were, at that historic moment in space and time, and with the infinite value of Jesus Christ as God in this place. This being so, on the God side, we find that his work being attributed to the person, but because he is God, his work has infinite value. <coughs> On the other hand, because he is truly man, because he is truly man, <coughs> pardon me, because he is truly man, he is capable of toil, liable to toil, temptation, suffering, death. So his temptation is not a piece of theater. It's no use people, as, as I've said before, people often say, what does it mean? What does it mean to me? It doesn't mean anything to me because he's God. Of course he couldn't sin, but that isn't the scriptural emphasis. The scriptural emphasis is he's truly man with this great emphasis, so much so that what he does, he does uh, with being anointed by the Holy Spirit. And this being so, his temptations are real temptations. It's not a piece of theater. His suffering, his death, because he's truly man. 
And so you have, and it's on the side of his being truly a man, and doing his work under the impetus of the Holy Spirit, that he can be a true example to us as Christians. A true example to us as Christians. So we find, therefore, these two things uh, brought definitely together. His work is to be seen in the light of who he is. This is the important thing. His, light, his work is to be seen in the light of who he is. He's truly God, and therefore his death is infinite in that space-time moment on the cross. But he's truly man, and so he really dies. He's really tempted. And after we accept Christ as our Savior, it has meaning to speak of him as our example. It has meaning now. You see, it's no longer, if you begin to get the feel of this from a scriptural viewpoint, uh, and seeing this Chalcedonian Christology that's come up through the church, you begin to feel the reality of something here now. It's no longer just an orthodox statement. And so often these things become mere orthodoxy. And the end of the matter is the screen of orthodoxy. Uh, are you orthodox? Well, now, of all people, I fight for orthodoxy. But I fight for orthodoxy not for orthodoxy's sake. To use in the words that... Uh, I use constantly here, I guess. Maybe people get tired of it. But to me, it's a way of thinking. Max Planck's last essays. And Max Planck's last essays spoke of the, the changes of concepts in, in, the, in physics. Uh, and as such, in science, and he spoke of the screen being taken back further in our generation with this idea, what is your screen? How far back do you think? Well, that's what I'd suggest is the way we ought to think here. How far back do we think? Uh, here's the, Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian Christology. This is the orthodox position of the church. Good, let us hold it. But don't hold it because it's the orthodox position. Let's see it's a scriptural position. And this is taught as truth. As truth. So now there is a feeling of reality. If I'm a young person who has been raised out of some kind of Christian background, I'm not just fighting in a burlap sack of orthodoxy. I'm fighting in the arena of truth now. Is it true? Is God there? Is he really there? If he's there, then this is what there is. And this is the reason Christianity has the answers. Because it is like this. It's no longer just orthodoxy in a between quotation marks. Our... Our final screen, to use Max Planck's words, must never be mere orthodoxy. Let us be orthodox. But the final screen is the truth of the matter and the reality of the thing and the feeling of the structure of it. And then the answers that flow from this. Now we're talking in terminology that speaks to a man of our generation as well as when the Chalcedon creeds uh, were first drawn up. There's a reality here, a force, a drive, something living. Only one more point of emphasis in the Chalcedonian concept, and that is that the human nature of Jesus did not exist at all prior to, uh, prior to the incarnation. There's no use. Anyone wants to start a long song and dance with you about the abstract question of the human nature of Jesus prior to the incarnation. It's a very simple answer. It just didn't exist, so it's very simple. The second person, the Trinity, existed forever, but the human nature of Jesus Christ started when the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit began the birth processes in the body of Mary, 
And that's when the human nature of Jesus began. So what you have as a divine nature is eternal, but the human nature had a beginning. It had a beginning. Now, let us notice that in 1 John 4, 1 and 2, that these, this very place we're talking, is, may, is we're told is to be the place of test of, of doctrines. If somebody comes bringing to us something and uh, it says, this is the way to test it, this is the way to test the spirits, <clears throat> what's brought to us. Beloved, believe not every spirit, <clears throat> but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone into the world. Of course, the Bible's emphasis never is just, quote, religion, end of quote, is good. Not at all. The question is content. The question isn't just religious experience without content. It isn't just existential experience put in religious terminology. It's content that's to be tested according to Scripture. There's such a thing as truth, and truth that can, can be considered. Well, how do we know? What's to be the test? And the second verse, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. But you notice this has two parts to it. Very often men speak as though it only has one. And it isn't. It's both. It isn't just anything that denies his true humanity, anything that says he didn't come in the flesh. It isn't only this is to be rejected because it has a second part to it. He already was, and then he came in the flesh. So anything in the early heresies that would deny his true humanity would be rejected on the basis that it said he didn't come in the true flesh in a real, very real sense. On the other hand, anything of the modern heresies are to be rejected because he was there, and then he did come in the flesh. He was there, and he did come in the flesh. The same notice we, same note we found in Hebrews. So either side is to be rejected according to the Scripture. Does someone say that he did not really come in the flesh? It's to be rejected. But did someone going to say that he was not there as the second person of the Trinity before he came in the flesh? Then that's to be equally rejected. Consequently, the scripture doesn't put this down as an academic question. It doesn't put it down merely as something to give you uh, a religious experience when you're sitting in a cathedral uh, uh, underneath the stained glass windows with Bach being played on the organ. And you're contemplating this and it gives you a religious experience. That's exactly what the Bible says. And that isn't to be the end of this. It is real. It is something that actually is given to us as the rule whereby we're to measure what men will bring to us. If they deny one side or the other, we're to say false prophet. False prophet. Now just one more question tonight. I think I get through this in our two hours. And that is, how did the unique Son of God become a man? Just a few moments on this. How did the unique Son of God become a man? The larger catechism says this. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance and born of her, yet without sin. 
Now, of course, no one in this room, and I guess no one who would listen to the tape, would have any question that modern man tries to get rid of the virgin birth. And you have people saying, what does it matter, really? What matters a great deal? It isn't just theoretical again. It isn't again that the screen is mere orthodoxy. There's a great deal involved in this, because from the scriptural viewpoint, and surely from uh, a viewpoint of comprehension, the idea of, Jesus, of, true, of the Son of God becoming man would be meaningless words if the virgin birth was not connected with the idea. The reality of the virgin birth is what puts flesh and bones on this thing, in a sense. It's what makes the idea understandable. And it's where the scripture itself says the wonder of the thing took place. So we read here, you notice the steps that the Westminster Confession gives. Christ, the Son of God, he's always been this. He became man. He became something that wasn't before. How? By taking himself a true body and a reasonable soul. But how? Being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. So the way he took upon him the true nature of a man, that's what this little word means of her substance here, born of her yet without sin, but the way he took on him the nature, the human nature, was through the virgin birth. So when people start talking to you, what does the virgin birth mean? Is it important? The answer is very important indeed. The whole Chalcedon Christology must fall to the ground or be a meaningless babble of words if we don't understand the reality, the space-time, physical reality of the virgin birth. Now let me just say flatly, the Bible doesn't, it doesn't mean anything uh, uh, strange about the virgin birth in the sense that it's something we can't comprehend. The virgin birth means simply this, that Mary was a virgin. She had never had sexual relationships with a man, and yet she gave birth to Jesus Christ. And she didn't do it, she didn't do it... Uh, simply because uh, uh, they hadn't had full intercourse or something like this. This is not the scriptural emphasis. The scripture is that there was no male particle involved in this whatsoever, but that the Holy Spirit began the birth process in her womb without the male sperm present. It's just as flat as this is what the Bible wants us to understand. Just like this. A true virgin birth. The Holy Spirit began the birth processes. Might say in passing, people often say, but as an educated man, can you believe such a thing? And this is always find slightly amusing. Because if you begin at the other end and really believe in an infinite personal God who created all things out of nothing and began the birth pro- processes in the, be- in the beginning, which no man understands to this day yet how the birth processes work, if this God this infinite personal God created the birth processes in the beginning, the concept of in this case for his own high purposes, beginning the birth processes without a male portion being present, certainly is not difficult at all. It just depends what door you come in at. It's as simple as this. Now then, does the Bible teach the virgin birth? And we'll hurry through this so I can be sure to get through in the two hours. Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14. 
therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel simply means God with us. God with us. How, how could God be with us? Well, it's very simple. God can be with us in this complete sense we've been talking about tonight because of the virgin birth. And the virgin birth was prophesied here 700 years before Jesus came. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are aware that in the New Translations, there is a tremendous effort to get rid of the word virgin with a tendency to translate it something like, Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, simply I would say on the basis of scholarship, this is impossible. It's a poor translation just on the basis of scholarship. Internally, let us notice that it's meaningless to say, Young woman shall conceive and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. What would be especially noticeable or prophetic about a young woman bearing a child? A few have, I would say. It would be meaningless. It's meaningless. But there's something more to it linguistically. And that is <clears throat> that in the Rashamra tablets, in the Rashamra tablets, which would be parallel, uh, this word is definitely used for virgin. Definitely used for virgin. More than that, the early the Jews who translated the Septuagint translated into the Greek translated it as the hard word virgin. More than that, this word only appears. It's perfectly true. There are the two words for virgin. There are the two words here. And one is clearly virgin, and it's the other word. But this word only appears six other times in the Old Testament. It's an unusual word, it is true. But it's never once used for a married woman. Not once, not once, not once. So you have the fact that it is never used for a married woman. The Rashamra tablets bear testimony that it means virgin. The Septuagint bears testimony that it means virgin. And when it's carried over and quoted in the New Testament, in Matthew 1.23, Matthew 1.23, it's quoted verbatim in the New Testament. Behold, yes, 22nd first. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, that's back to Isaiah, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. It doesn't allow any room for mistake. And in the Greek, there is a hard word for virgin. And that's the word that's used here. It's the hard word for virgin. It doesn't mean anything else, can't mean anything else. So from a script, from a scholarly viewpoint, I think this just shows the presuppositions of the translator's uh, thoughts. They want to get rid of it. It's a very important verse to get rid of if you're going to get rid of the supernaturalism of Scripture. But certainly scholarship can't say that it must be this way. It's quite the other way. So we find back then in Isaiah 714, 700 years before Jesus comes, it's spe spoken specifically that when he comes, when he comes, uh, he will be born of a virgin. Way back at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 3.15, the first promise given of the coming Messiah 
Within 24 hours after man fell, according to the Bible, we read God's promise, God's initial promise of the coming Messiah. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God speaking to the devil here behind uh, the serpent. And it's true that if this is all we had, we couldn't plead the virgin birth from this. But you will notice a very remarkable thing, and that is this is the only place anywhere in, uh, in the Bible where you have spoken of the seed of the woman. This isn't the way it's done. It's never done this way. It's just like uh, the breeding of, of cattle. It's always uh, the offspring of such and such through so and so. This is the way your, your pedigrees are always written in, your, uh, in, the, in breeding cattle. This is the same thing the scripture uses. It's always the seed of the man through the woman. But in this particular case, the amazing, thrilling thing is that in the very first prophecy of God that there would be a Messiah, there would be someone who would win the victory and provide the solution. As soon as man sinned, the promise came. The emphasis has this as the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. Now, as I say, if that's all we had, you couldn't press it, perhaps. But it's most remarkable, and it fits in exactly with what we find in the rest of Scripture. Often people say that there is no Pauline notice uh, mention of the virgin birth. And in a certain way, this is true. But let's look at Galatians 4.4. 4. Galatians 4.4. 4. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Now, it's true it doesn't speak of a virgin birth here, but hardly anything else would seem to fit. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Certainly, in this terminology, uh, with made of a woman, but no, no mention of a father. And it isn't just an argument from silence here. Because this isn't the way things are done. When the, when the Bible gives a genealogy, the Bible always gives the genealogy down through the Father. This is the way the genealogies are emphasized. Uh, here we don't find Paul speaking this way. Made of a woman. Made of a woman. Why the silence? Why the thing that's completely out of line with the scriptural direction? Well, certainly the easiest solution to the question why here would be the answer that while he doesn't expressly teach the virgin birth, he doesn't need to. It's, or, it's taught in the Gospels. The church already believes it. Yet nevertheless, what he says here would fit most expressly into it. In Romans 9.5, in Romans 9.5, Whose are the fathers, and of whom concerning the flesh Jesus came? who is over all, God bless forever. So he emphasizes here uh, concerning the fact that as far as the flesh is concerned, he, he comes, from, he comes from, uh, from the Jews. But it's quite obvious there's the other side. According to the flesh, he comes from the Jews, but not on his divine side. Now this isn't an emphasis on the virgin birth as such, but it does bring these two factors together. And once again, uh, once again, certainly the easiest understanding of it is the understanding that the Jewish mind would have had all the way from the time of Isaiah. Why is he Emmanuel? 
Why is he God with us? Uh, because of the virgin birth. And the Jewish mind would have had this in mind. And this passage in Galatians and Passions, uh, Galatians 4, 4 and Romans 9, 5 uh, fits very, very easily into it. Very easily into it. And it would be very, uh, it would be far less easy to fit into it the concept that Paul uh, knew nothing of a virgin birth. This is so often stated. This is a, surely a, a tremendous argument to draw merely from the fact that he doesn't labor the thing. There's all kinds of points concerning Jesus that he doesn't labor. Because these, these things were already believed. There they were. And especially as he's speaking to anyone who knows the Old Testament, the thing is already there in the prophecies. But of course, it is the Gospels that give us the clearest statement. And so in Luke 126, in Luke 126, we read, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth. To a virgin, and this is the hard word, espoused, that means engaged, they weren't married yet, to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And down a little further, we find her, uh, we find her asking the question, uh, 34, Then Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? How will it be, seeing as I haven't had sexual relationship with any man? I'm a true virgin. How can it be? And then the answer of the 31st verses, 35th verse is, The Holy Spirit comes upon you. In the 38th verse, And Mary said, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. So here we find... Mary says, how's it to be? The explanation comes. And she takes herself, she hands herself in love over to God, and the virgin birth takes place. And the rather intriguing thing here is, of course, that Luke is the physician. He is the doctor. And it's an intriguing thing that it's Luke, the doctor, the physician, uh, who, who puts more emphasis on the virgin birth than anyone else. It's just uh, as natural as one would expect. It's often said also that John has no testimony of the virgin birth. But once again, like Paul, this is a, seems a strange thing to say uh, in the light of that which falls so easily into place if one understands that he simply is, uh, is acting in the framework of the virgin birth. And that is John 1.14 and the Logos. Who is this Logos? In verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and so on. And uh, here He is. This is who He is. But in the 14th verse, And this one became flesh. In the aorist tense, a once-for-all movement, He became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So the one who has eternally been God now becomes something more. You see, this isn't the same as Hebrews and so forth. He becomes flesh and he dwells among us. He becomes flesh and he dwells among us. How? Well, certainly the thing that fits in best is just what you find in Luke, just what you find in Matthew, just what you find in Isaiah. Emmanuel, God with us. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel. God with us. Surely this is a part of one stream of thought. And then finally, the most, the final thing and the overwhelming thing, the final mark is in Matthew, 
Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And the reason this is overwhelming is because it convinced Joseph. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was in this wise, when his, as his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph and spoused, before they came together where she was found a child of the Holy Ghost. And Joseph, her husband, the word husband here it does not change the fact of their engagement. It was the common Jewish usage. They had a very binding engagement, but the, the, the thing of description is the engagement in the 18th verse, the espousal. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her public example, was minded to put her away privately. And so Joseph was quite certain she had been unfaithful because he knew he didn't have anything to do with this child. So here he is, he knew that she had been unfaithful if she was having a child as far as all natural things are concerned, and he was just going to put her away. He would have had a right to have her killed as unfaithful. He didn't want to do this. He was a just man, he's a kind man, he loved her, and he was just going to put her away. But now, let's, let's notice the setting for a moment. Who's harder to convince than a fiancé who knows that he didn't have anything to do with it and his fiancé turns up with a baby? Who's harder to convince? He had a, it isn't that he was going to say, I don't care. He wasn't the kind of a man. He was a Jew with real sense of absolutes. And so he, he knew he had only one thing to do, put her away. But he was in that situation where as a Jew, on the law of God, she had to be put away because she had been unfaithful. And as a, as a Jew with this high setting, and loving her, and being convinced her she was absolutely unfaithful. Being convinced of this, he was convinced in the other direction. It's the strongest testimony possible. He would be the hardest person to convince, and he was the one who had everything to lose. He was the one who had everything to lose, because she was going to give birth to somebody's baby, and it wasn't his. It wasn't his. This he knew. And in such a setting... In the 20th verse, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. The Greek is begotten. That which is begotten in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him and his wife, and he knew her not, that is sexually, he knew her not, until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus doesn't say that they never had natural relationships at all, quite in the other direction. It says, not until, but it insists that it was until. And here Joseph, who had everything to lose, who was convinced she was unfaithful, was convinced in the other direction on the basis that she was the one, this was the one unique birth of history, that it was a virgin birth, conceived by the beginning of the birth processes through the work of the Spirit. So how did the unique Son of God become a man? The scripture is very emphatic. 
It's through the virgin birth that he is Emmanuel, God with us. That's coming to a conclusion concerning the person of Jesus Christ, the mediator. He's always been God. He's always been God. But after he was born to Mary in the virgin birth, the incarnation, he was one person with two natures. He is truly God and he's truly man. And this isn't just a passing thing. He is truly God and he's truly man forever. And this one, this is the one who is the mediator. And there, according to scripture, is no other. And this concludes our 15th study on the doctrines of the Bible.